And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. We're living through revolutionary times driven by technology, driven by globalization, and felt in our economy where jobs that once produced good middle-class wages have disappeared and other opportunities have appeared for people who are um, highly educated and well-trained. That shift has been charted by Steve Greenhouse, the longtime labor correspondent for the New York Times, who's written both in his articles and books, the chronicles of shifting labor patterns in our country and the impact that they've had on people. Steve Greenhouse was a fellow at the Institute of Politics this spring, uh, and we sat down to talk about uh, his journey and the journey of our economy in the 21st century. Steve Greenhouse, first of all, thank you for all your great work at the University of Chicago Institute of Politics. It's been great to, to have you here. It's, it's been a wonderful gig. I feel part of the gig economy. Uh-huh. The, um, but I want to talk to you a little bit about, about how you, 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 you were, for decades, the preeminent sort of labor writer in the country, working at the preeminent newspaper uh, in the country, and uh, working on a subject that you obviously were very passionate uh, about. So I want to talk about the beginning and uh, you, you grew up in Massapequa, uh, Long, uh, Long Island, in New York, at the home of, uh, uh, of Alec Baldwin and Jerry Seinfeld. So you're the third funniest guy to come out of Massapequa. I'm probably about the thousandth funniest guy. We used to, <laughs> we used to call it matzo pizza because there's so many Jews and Italians. <laughs> and you're, um, uh, tell me about, tell me about uh, your folks. So my folks, uh, my father was a high school teacher, and he taught math and then economics. He taught community college on the side. Uh, he didn't start that until around 1960 before he was an independent businessman. He was a dry cleaner. My mother used to work in retail uh, as a sales lady, and then after 1960, uh, she became a social worker for, for Nassau County. Uh-huh. But you, as you and I have discussed, your dad... Uh, was not your usual dry cleaner. No, my father. So my father grew up very poor during the depression. His father was a garment cutter. Was laid off during the depression, and then my father was so poor that his parents had him live with an uncle who had more money. And my father told me some days at his house he'd open up the refrigerator and there'd just be, you know, a, a quart of milk. And he was really poor. And was very disgruntled with uh, the the system then, and he became a real man of the left. He went to city city college, where a lot of uh, people became communists, and for a while he was a communist. And um, he left the party in the nineteen, I think, around nineteen fifty six, after Khrushchev denounced Stalin and after Hungarian rebellion. And uh, I was kind of, I rebelled in the family by being the anti-communist because I said communism, you know, denied freedom of speech, denied freedom of of religion, denied freedom of the press. But he was denied uh, some some opportunities because of his, I mean, that was a very, very difficult period uh, in our history. And people who were associated with the Communist Party were obviously more than ostracized. Uh, Because your dad, he... 
he went from these very poor beginnings to becoming a, a very serious academic and studied uh, statistics, right? So, yes. So uh, he was, you know, it was never clear to me whether he was officially blacklisted, but at the time in the 1950s, if you wanted to get a government job and he had really studied statistics and he was prepared for a government job, he would have to sign an oath that swore he had never been a member of the Communist Party, and he didn't want to do that. That's why he went into business for himself. Didn't and want to do it because it would have been a lie? Would have been a lie. Was- well, yeah, yeah. And um, so after 1960, President Kennedy lifted the requirement for the loyalty oath in most government jobs. So then he was able to go- get a job as a teacher. My father was a wonderful teacher. He was repeatedly chosen you know, best teacher at the high school he taught at. And he was studying for a doctorate. He was very good in statistics. During the war, he actually studied here at the University of Chicago. He studied physics. He, he was sent here to work, uh, to prepare to work on the Manhattan Project. Wow. He was kind of in the farm league, the minor league. Uh, but by the time he was ready, they had already developed the bomb, and then he served in Japan. That would have been problematical for him, probably, huh? No, he was he was extremely well. I mean, he was extremely I mean, anti-Nazi. That was no, no. But know. it would have been problematical for him if it had been discovered that he worked on the Manhattan Project and then and and had also been I, a member of the Communist I, Party. I mean, I I don't think so really because uh, you know, we were uh, you know our ally was was Russia was Stalin. You know, you know if, if anything, At the, the, time, communi- the, I, communi- I, the I, communists I, were even more anti-Nazi than many than many other folks. Yeah. I'm just saying about Oppenheimer and some of the people who worked on it who ultimately uh, uh, were uh, tried. And uh, But, you know, one thing that interests me about this story is um, that your dad grew up poor and um, he went to City College. And obviously City College was kind of an exemplary place. I mean, it was a, it was a, a, a really good uh, institution where it, People could go and get an education essentially for free, uh, and he became uh, a professional. Um, that seems like an affirmation of, you know, our system in some ways. Yes, you know he, you know he talked about how wonderful the GI Bill was. It helped pay for him to go to graduate school. It helped him buy this little house on Long Island, uh, in Massapequa. And really helped social mobility. He had been really poor, and then he became, you know, a successful teacher. He taught community college. He got a very good pension, and you know, he saw how, you know, the government, the GI Bill, could really help people like him rise. And he, you know, he very much, you know, believed in economic opportunity. He believed in dignity for for everyone. You know, my mother would always le- lecture me. You know, even the worker with the humblest job, you got to treat them with dignity. And maybe some of those life lessons I got from my parents prepared me to be yeah. uh, a, a labor reporter. But uh, it was not a direct route. Uh, you you went off to college. You went to Wesleyan. Uh, you were the editor of the school newspaper there. Uh, what what attracted you to to writing? So uh, I remember when I was fifth or sixth grade, uh, my, you know, my father was a teacher. Uh, we went to a friend's house, and he had this print, little Gestetner printing press about maybe three feet long. And it was you know, printing like hundreds and hundreds of, uh, 
of copies of something. I said, this is so cool, the power of the press. You know, you think of Gutenberg. And then in high school, I was an editor of a high school paper, and we wrote an editorial against the Vietnam War, and the high school administration censored it, and we were pretty upset. And then we started a little underground paper. And like that was such a thrill, you know, putting together your own paper. And, you know, again, the power of the press, being able to, to, to write about things that you were important. So was this, hook, was this related to this sort of social justice upbringing of yours, that, this, that, the, that a free press, that a, it was a way of shining a bright light? So, you know, I grew up caring. And, and, you know, my parents were concerned about social justice, helping the poor. You know, I would tell people I went to far more civil rights marches growing up than I went to baseball games. Uh, seriously. And um, so one of the reasons I love journalism, and I, and I tell students here at the University of Chicago and elsewhere, it's a wonderful field if you like writing, if you like the creativity of writing, and you care about public policy or, or issues of justice, or if you want to write about the arts, or if you want to write about, you know, go to Southeast Asia and write about life in Cambodia, Vietnam. I think it's wonderful. So for me, I love writing, and I, there are a lot of subjects I care about, so I was attracted to journalism. And my parents were pushing me to be a lawyer. Uh, which you briefly were. So I, so I was always torn between journalism and law school, and I worked for three years after going to Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. I worked for three years for a newspaper in New Jersey, the Bergen Record in Hackensack. I wasn't usually happy there. I thought, you know, some of the managers were, you know, kind of cruel. And I said, this is a crazy profession. I'm going to go to law school. So I went to law school at NYU and did well there. Got a federal clerkship with Judge Robert Carter, who was Thurgood Marshall's assistant and Brown v. Board. Uh, but I realized at law school that, just journalism is more fun. It's more interesting. It's more creative. Uh, you know, if you write a brief, you work on it for like two months. In journalism, you know, you could do something different every two or three days, yeah. and and you could jump around more to issues. You choose the issues, whereas in law, the issues often choose you. Now, you had been a copy clerk at the Times, right? Like as a kid. So, <coughs> right out of college, the editor in chief of the college newspaper at Wesleyan. And uh, so upon graduate, you know, before graduating, I wrote to all the Wesleyan grads at the New York Times. There was uh, Ted Fisk, the education editor, uh, the science editor, um, Bayard Webster, a wonderful guy, Evan, Evan Jenkins, a wonderful news editor. And they helped me get a job as a copy boy. And a copy boy, I sorted mail. I got coffee, and I ran copy. People have no idea what running copy means. Yeah. There were something called typewriters then, and people would type <laughs> articles one page at a time, and after each page, they'd pull out of the typewriter, and they'd yell, copy! Yeah. And you'd have to run over as quickly as you can and take the run page the from desk. their hand and run it over the desks. And as soon as the editor finished editing that page, you'd put it in a pneumatic tube, and it went up to the composing room. Yeah, boy, I, think, uh, boy, things have changed. When yeah. I started at the uh, Chicago Tribune uh, Right out of college, we were typing on these carbon books, and you know, with white, yellow, and pink uh, sheets. And you know, one you kept, you kept the yellow one. The pink one went to the copy desk, and the white one went to the editors. And uh, uh, yeah, it seems like uh, I think we're dating ourselves here. But it yes. was fun. I mean, it, it was, was fun. It was. It was now, did you were you energized by the environment? Did you? I love the you know 
you know, I grew up, my parents subscribed to the New York Times. I'd, you know, go outside seven, eight in the morning, in the morning, you know, getting the New York Times. I thought it was so great and so intelligent and so fair. And I kind of always dreamt of being a reporter for the New York Times. And lo and behold, uh, when I was hired, I was extremely happy. I was hired as a business reporter. And I remember this wonderfully smart editor from South Carolina, John M. Lee, said, this is the seat you're going to sit at. This was Tom Friedman's seat. You have big shoes to fill. Uh-huh. And when, when you uh, – and, and after, so you left the law and you got a job back at the Times? Yes. And uh, how, just on the basis of what? So when I was – Can't be fair, just that fair, you're a good fair, copy clerk. Fair question. So as a copy clerk, I worked 20 hours a week as a copy clerk, but then I probably wrote articles 30 hours a week. And I impressed some editors that I was a smart kid. So um, you know, I worked at the Bergen Record. I did very well in law school. You know, The editor I was closest to when I was a copy boy was this John Lee who had moved up to become business editor. And he kind of took a chance on me. He thought you know, I could do pretty well. And I started out at the Times as uh, covering basic industry, the steel industry. I spent a lot of time in Chicago. After six months at the Times, I must have done something right because they said, we want you to become our, our Midwest economics correspondent. And I moved to Chicago. And this was a time, 1984, when the Midwest was really struggling to recover from the very difficult 1981-82 recession. And I wrote a lot about some of the problems Donald Trump talks about nowadays, you know, beleaguered blue-collar workers and what are we as a nation going to do to help them? The other guy who arrived here just about that time was Barack Obama, who's working as a community organizer in the shadow of those closed steel mills on the south side. He's done better than I have. Yeah, you've done all right. So um, uh, what, you know, we, we speak about the sort of climate in our country today as if it's, it's been, it's, it's emerged suddenly. But in your writing, uh, you've sort of charted the uh, transformation in our economy that has created winners and 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 losers, uh, including the people who worked in that in those steel mills uh, on the uh, on the south side of Chicago and environs. Um, what happened to our economy? And you, by the way, wrote a terrific book called "The Big Squeeze: Tough Times for American Worker" in two thousand and eight. So this uh, this is now uh, well in advance of, of Donald Trump. Yes. I'd like to say I think he read it, but I'm not sure. Uh, uh, so in the book, I talk a lot about the decline of manufacturing in the United States, how globalization has really hurt manufacturing. I went out to Galesburg, wrote about the closing of the refrigerator factory there. President Obama went out there as well. I said, uh, I wrote that. You know, it doesn't make sense to me that presidents, the governors, just kind of turn a blind eye when all these companies are moving jobs overseas. And I kind of said, you know, you know, just as President Kennedy used jawboning to discourage the steelmakers from raising prices and, and hurting consumers, I thought, you know, President Obama, President Bush, you know, could have done a little jawboning to, you know, to discourage companies. Don't, don't give them a free pass to move jobs to uh, Bangladesh or China or Mexico. And uh, Donald Trump, I don't want to say he's taken my advice, but he's done some of that, too. He hasn't done it. He's done it in a, in, a, in a haphazard way, kind of just focusing on carrier. And he said, 
know, jobs moving abroad is going to stop on my watch. But that it hasn't stopped at all. Well, you know, the interesting thing about that carrier situation is that carrier, uh, a- after his job boning, uh, announced that they were going to keep uh, some operations here. But they quickly announced after that that they were also going to automate uh, uh, the, the, the very plant that, that he was pointing to. So these are forces that are very hard to control. I mean, I wonder now, you know, I've said this before, but I, whether um, the, you know, he talks a lot about Mexico and China, less about China now that he's president. Um, But it feels like robots and computers and artificial intelligence are the the real, the the greatest threat to uh, middle class jobs and the greatest depressant to wages because it's cheaper for corporations to automate and have machines do the job that people used to do. Absolutely. One of my big concerns about our nation is, you know, automation and globalization are, you know, pushing down wages and making, you know, corporations, you know, pushing up corporate profits, increasing inequality. And when you think, what should we as a nation do about that? You know, you know, the administration, Congress are cutting taxes on corporations and cutting taxes on the very rich and hardly thinking at all about the millions or even tens of millions of people whose jobs have been endangered. And I think that's something we as a nation really should be fo- focusing far much more on. Another thing uh, that I think is one of the big stories out there and just we as a nation aren't paying nearly enough attention. So we are entering the gig economy. We are in the gig economy. And there are millions of Americans, millions it's of... It's also facilitated by technology. Yeah, facilitated by technology, Absolutely. Uh, Explain what the gig economy. So the gig, is. the gig economy is instead of, you know, like our parents, David, would have you know jobs that would you know maybe have the same job for twenty or thirty or forty years, and there's a lot of loyalty from the company, from the employer to the worker, and the worker to the employer. Now people often have uh, jobs for six months or a year. Sometimes uh, you know preparing a website for Uber. It's kind of a gig. You're, Uber says you're not a regular worker, you're just an independent contractor. Mechanical Turk, you know, you go onto this this website and you do various little jobs that might take two minutes or 20 minutes or two hours, and you might get paid five cents or five dollars for them. And you're doing all these little things, these little gigs. And, you know, more and more Americans are doing gig jobs, and they provide lots of flexibility, and that's great. But if you have these jobs, you're not going to get a pension. You're not going to get a 401k. Health coverage. You're not going to get health coverage. And this is a big issue. And instead of doing anything to help these people, we seem to be moving away from helping them. You know, say, you know, one of the advantages of Obamacare is it's provided some health security to people in gig jobs. Mm-hmm. You know, if you work for a big employer and stay there 20 years, <laughs> you normally got health insurance. But if you're, you know, an Uber driver or working for Mechanical Turk or doing all these little gigs, you don't have health insurance. And the advantage of Obamacare or, or, or the French health system or the German health system is, you know, they provide more health security to people, and it, you know, increases freedom in many ways by enabling people to move from job to job without having to worry whether or not they're going to lose health coverage. But you know, let me. I, I want to unpack this because. Uh, you say it's pushed corporate profits up. It's increased inequality, um, globalization, technology, and that is absolutely true. Uh, but if, uh, if 
if a corporate uh, leader was here, they would say, they would say, he or she would say, that is the the logic of businesses to uh, to be profitable, I, I, and it, and following that logic, automating. Uh, Exporting operations where labor is cheaper is uh, absolutely rational and probably demanded by shareholders. Uh, absolutely. What is the counter argument to that? So first, I should point out because some economists will already be jumping down my throat. Uh, globalization has raised living standards for hundreds of millions of people in, in China right. and India. Right. So it might have reduced overall worldwide inequality by raising... And Bangladesh. And, bang, and, and Bangladesh and, and Vietnam, places, Cambodia, yeah. Sri Lanka, and Honduras. Right. Um, but it's probably, and I, I would submit, it's probably increased inequality within the United States. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really hurt the blue-collar middle class. And, well, I think, and we felt it, we felt it uh, here in the industrial Midwest. This is one of the things that propelled... Uh, Donald Trump in his in his election, absolutely, and and we, I'm sure we'll discuss that more. But a- answering, so yes, you know, CEOs are under pressure to maximize profits, get their share price up, and they'll use you know the 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 uh, the tools they have, and that includes you know you know if you're making garments in the United States and paying workers thirteen dollars an hour, and can pay garment workers in Sri Lanka or Bangladesh. 50 cents for a dollar, a dollar 30 an hour, people often do that. And they'll say, that's great for shareholders and, and deal with automation. And you know, certainly a lot of this is good for consumers. It will help hold down costs. But it, you know, uh, you know, Americans are workers and Americans are consumers. And what might be good for them as consumers might uh, throw them out of jobs, depress their wages, you know, right. pull them out of the and middle it's hard class. To, it's actually hard to be a good consumer if you don't have any money to yes. spend. I mean, I see in so many cities uh, the decline of like middle-level stores, you know, like like a Kohl's or Macy's, and you'll see the because Neiman's doing well, and you'll see the the you know the Family Dollar stores, and and it's really interesting, you know, that there's kind of a, a polarization in in the re, in the retail market as we've seen a thinning out of the middle class. It's also true that the that here too technology is is having a huge impact because people are no longer going into stores. They're sitting at their computers. They're ordering stuff. Uh, and all these retail jobs are, uh, are disappearing. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with Steve Greenhouse. I, we, I want to continue this uh, discussion, but before I do, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the labor movement itself. Um, you know, I, I remember when I, the second day I was an intern at the Tribune, right after I had left school and I was desperately trying to get a job, full-time job there, uh, I came in one morning and uh, uh, the city editor said the Teamsters Union had just met in, in Las Vegas and Frank Fitzsimmons, who was the president of the Teamsters Union, and all the officers had voted themselves fantastic raises, I mean, just exponential uh, raises, and uh, this guy probably trying to test whether I had the medal to to actually be a reporter said, "I want you to go out and find some teamsters and ask them how they feel about it." So I was not that thrilled about the prospect of going to con- ask teamsters who 
had a good reason not to want to comment on this, given the nature of the Teamsters Union. On the other hand, I was even more frightened about not getting a job at the Tribune. So I went out and I found a loading dock. And um, I finally found a few people who were crazy enough to uh, comment on the record because they were so angry about the disparity between their wages and what their union leaders were getting. Um, But uh, labor is a much less uh, obvious (laughs) factor in our lives today. I mean, the labor movement uh, is a shadow of of what it was even then. Uh, and um, tell me why, and tell me what the impact of of that is in in this discussion we've been having about uh, the nature of our economy. I could talk two hours about that, but we'll try to telescope it. So in the, in the 1930s and 40s and 50s in the, in the United States, the labor movement was very strong. It was very exciting. People cared about it. A lot of smart kids who graduated from college were decide to join or you know, become labor organizers. And they're kind of the new, new thing for a while. You know, and, and they really, especially after World War II, they really helped build the middle class. You know, there's a famous Flint sit-down strike, 1936-37, which was lead story in the nation's papers. Walter Ruther, the head of the UAW, was one of the great men in the United States. Yeah. He helped, you know, he helped fund the 1963 March on Washington. Yeah. He helped fund the United Farm Workers and the great Cesar Chavez. And labor was exciting, and people generally had the sense it was doing the right thing and trying to help build and sustain the middle class. In the 1950s, about 35% of American workers were in unions. That's down to 10.7%, and in the private sector, just 6.4%. So we went from a nation where one in three workers was in a union to now where in the private sector it's like one in 16. And as you mentioned in your Teamsters anecdote, unions often shot themselves in the foot. You know, they were corrupt. Sometimes they just did a lousy, lousy job serving members. Sometimes they fell asleep at the wheel, forgetting that you have to try to grow, to remain strong, to uh, unionize the new sectors of the economy. And I think that's one of the reasons unions have gotten uh, much weaker and union density has declined is that, you know, their whole sectors like retail and banking, where they've just done, you know, they've been asleep. But I mean, it's hard, it's hard to unionize finance. But retail, I think they could have unionized millions and millions of workers, and they just have been very slow at it's that. It's also true that, um, well, two things. One is uh, from uh, the end of the war to about the mid-'70s, you saw uh, the growth of wages uh, at uh, – ascend at about the same rate as the growth of the economy. So as the economy grew, it really did lift yes. all boats. That's not true anymore. Absolutely. So from around 1946 to 1973, uh, hourly productivity basically rose at the same rate as hourly compensation. It was hand-in-hand. Hand. And, and there are many reasons for that, but one was that unions were strong and they helped make sure that employers shared their profits, shared their prosperity with their workers. After it also 19- was the heyday of American manufacturing. Yeah, and it was the heyday of American manufacturing, and Japan and, and, and Europe you know, were really knocked out by the war, and we weren't feeling much global competition. So after 1973, 79, the oil shocks, which, which you know, uh, weakened our economy. But more than that, you know, Europe and Japan became big competitors, and that was really the beginning of global competition. Uh, and automation was taking place too. So a lot of manufacturers really hurt. And, and we as a nation went from like 1920 
million manufacturing jobs, now down to about 12.5 million. And manufacturing was the heart of the labor movement. And mm-hmm. losing so many, so many manufacturing jobs due to globalization and automation really hurt labor. And, the, and uh, as listeners know, many of the new jobs have been in the service sector, like hotels or retail or nail salons or, or banks or restaurants. And they're in ways much harder to unionize. And in a factory... But it's still true that the the, one, the union that uh, is most dominant in that sector, the service employees union, is, is probably the one growth union uh, in the labor movement. Yeah, they're, they're one of the fastest going. They've done one of the best jobs in, in uh, unionizing lots of people. The hotel workers have been very good at, at, at um, unionizing various hotels. Another factor which I shouldn't forget is that you know companies have gotten much more sophisticated in fighting unions. And also many companies pay, pay better and treat their workers better than was the case in the 1930s and the 1940s. And a lot of people think, you know, I don't need a union. They treat me pretty well. But, you know... Uh, I actually, when I, was a, when I was a reporter, the Tribune wasn't unionized. The Sun-Times, the, uh, the paper across the street, was unionized. And the Tribune always paid us... Uh, as well or better than our colleagues across the street because they wanted to resist a unionization effort. And in that sense, we were the beneficiaries of uh, of the newspaper guild, even though we weren't represented uh, by We were kind of free riders, honestly. Uh, but uh, there's another factor that we should talk about, which is uh, government policies. Uh, you know, we went through a period of Largely, I mean, uh, in the in the in the 50s, Eisenhower was uh, president, and there was an interregnum. But you know, unions were very powerful politically and very much affiliated, by and large, with the Democratic Party. When Ronald Reagan got elected in 1980, it, there was a very uh, concerted effort to cut the power uh, of unions. He uh, certainly public employee unions, but um, uh, so policies have been uh, have made unionization more uh, difficult, have they not? No, ab- absolutely. So when Ronald Reagan ran for president, uh, he courted unions. He wanted, just like Donald Trump, he was trying to show, uh, I'm not only trying to attract you know bu- you know business executives and the rich. I'm trying to attract you know blue collar folks. And he won. Uh, he won the support of several unions, including the air traffic controllers. But then uh, the air traffic controllers union went on this you know, big nationwide illegal strike in 1981, and Reagan, you know, got very tough with them. You know, on, on one hand, he used, you know, he used to boast, "I'm pro union. I was the president of the Screen Actors Guild when I was president. I led them out on their very first strike." But then the Air traffic controllers confronted him with this illegal strike. They tried to shut down their airports to get, you know, what were fairly exorbitant wage demands. And he decided he crushed now, them. Cr- crushed them. Now's my time to be a strong leader. They broke the law, and he fired eleven thousand five hundred air traffic controllers. He says, "I wasn't trying to put unions on the defensive. I was just trying to, uh, you know, get the airports open again and show, you know, no one could push us around." But he really set a tone. Uh, I think that emboldened a lot of corporate leaders that saying it's now time to get tough on on unions. But when when President Reagan did this, uh, the nation was in recession. 
And so corporations are really hurting. You know, we're really feeling the beginning of, of uh, global pressure from Europe and Japan. Japanese cars are starting to stream in. Steel from Russia, Brazil, Romania, Belgium was starting to stream in. And the manufacturers just and felt we have to really take tough steps to become competitive. And part of that was to get become much, much tougher toward unions. In the 1950s and 1960s, when the United States was, you know, the king of the hill, when there was very little competition from Japan and Europe, it was easy for companies to pay a lot, and they felt, you know, unions, we could work hand-in-hand hand with them. But starting in the 1980s, the whole attitude chose, uh, changed, and in many ways, you know, the corporate fight against unions was helped by, you know, various labor laws. You know, people don't realize that if you're a union organizer and want to unionize, say, a factory of 500 people, you're not allowed to set foot in the, the company parking lot. You can be arrested. And at the same time, the company could show you videos, you know, nonstop or have one-on-one -on -one meetings with you to tell you, you know, the union sucks. They just want your money. Uh, I did a story a few years ago about the largest employer, Pennsylvania, UPMC, United uh, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. And on the screensavers at each person's desk, there was an anti-union message. So employers in many ways, you know, have they big, have big advantages. They have the upper hand. Um, what about race uh, as a element of uh, the division of the labor movement? You know, in the 60s, I, I, there was a great book that uh, David Marinus wrote recently and he was he was here uh called once in a great city and it was about detroit uh and the auto workers and um you know you mentioned walter ruther and his involvement in the in the civil rights movement and so on and he talked about the sort of fissure between um uh white ethnic auto workers uh and Ruther over <clears throat> over civil rights. It was that you know these divisions were showing up in our cities, um, but um, it, it it's it seems it feels as if uh, politicians since that time, uh, politicians on the right have exploited um, these tensions and this notion that um, you know we're working hard and our hardworking dollars are going to support people who aren't working at and you know, in many cases, in their interpretation, minorities, uh, and uh, you know, Trump. There's a version of that in what we see uh, today. Uh, how, how much is that sort of divided and 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 harm the the uh, labor movement as a as a political force? So, on one hand, you know, unions. Perhaps of all institutions in society, do more to bring you know people from different races together. I think more so than churches, um, maybe more so than schools, probably certainly more so than housing. And I know Walter Ruther tried very hard to bring white workers and black workers together and move you know uh, hesitant white workers to be more favorable to, to the civil rights movement. And he succeeded in large part, but not fully. Maybe David Marinus disagreed. Um, so. And and the union movement was you know became a champion of Hispanic workers. It thought you know it you know it saw this huge influx of of Hispanic workers. It saw how they were often exploited uh, and under unsafe conditions, under unfair wages. Some so it, of it the championed union movement. some the, of the, the the sort of big industrial unions less less so than uh, 
some of the more right. But but the AFL-CIO, the, the Federation of Unions adopted, you know, mm-hmm. by basically by consensus, you know, to be in favor of a pathway to legalization for it. You know, the labor movement used to be very nativist, and you know, want to keep out Chinese, keep out you know, people from Southern Europe, and under John Sweeney. Um, in the late, who was, the, who was the president of the AFLC in the late 1990s and the 2000s, he decided, you know, that he saw that Hispanic workers were being badly exploited. He saw that they might be the future union members of the future. So he swung, uh, and he and John Wilhelm, head of the hotel workers, really swung the labor movement behind Hispanics and a pathway to legalization. So, and they were big supporters, working with Republicans. So he came from the service employees. Yes, see? yes. And so he represented a lot of Hispanic Absolutely. workers. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So you know the. Labor- but you know, was a, you you look at the votes. I mean, I, I you hear this all the time. Um, a lot of Democrats voted against uh, during the Bush administration one version of the uh, of legalization uh, because they were worried about the influx of. Uh, of workers right, right. Uh, threatening, th- so threatening jobs. It, it was you know they those who were here. Work, uh, they, those work, who were here were worker permits. Right, uh, right. Those, permits. those who were here, they wanted to help because they thought you know if you're undocumented, it's very easy to exploit you. They wanted to keep out guest workers because they thought guest right. workers. And one of the interesting things is you know labor and the business community working very closely on a lot of this. It was interesting to see this cooperation, cooperation, and there was some real bipartisan cooperation between you know Republicans and Democrats. And so, but things have greatly changed over the past five, six years since Republicans in Congress blocked uh, President Bush's and then President Obama's proposal to to reform uh, immigration and, and create a pathway to legalization. And uh, Donald Trump, when he was running for president, you know, clearly thought uh, one way to win to attract blue collar white voters, and he clearly was, you know aiming for them yes. was to, you know, in his initial announcement speech, you know, he talked about Mexican rapists and, right. and, and he was talking forever about undocumented workers who committed murders. Yeah, and, well, and, and talked about expelling the undocumented workers, building a wall, and it was a successful strategy for him. Yes, it was. And and and, 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 and he got his share of labor votes. He got, he got a lot of labor votes. And, and, you know, and I think a lot of labor leaders were – surprised and disappointed. You know, they saw that a lot of their members are backing Trump. And I think more of the members ultimately voted for Trump than they expected. And, you know, they felt real frustration towards Hillary. They felt she wasn't, you know, pushing jobs nearly enough. She wasn't pushing uh, ways to strategies to increase wages nearly enough. I, I think, you know, she really hurt her by giving those $250,000 a pop speeches to Wall Street. I think labor leaders want the Democrats to make clear that they're the party of the middle class or the moderate income person of the blue collar worker and not holding hands with Wall Street. And, you know, Donald Trump in ways portrayed himself more than Hillary did as I'm the friend of the beleaguered blue collar worker. And he said, I'm going to bring back the jobs. I'm going to build a wall. I'm going to, you know, you know, kick China. I'm going to kick Mexico. I'm going to, you know, stop factories from leaving. And, you know, I was, you know, in the Midwest doing some interviews during the campaign and I interviewed some blue-collar workers, and they say, you know, I realize that Trump is in ways, part of my friends, bullshitting us. But he shows he cares about our issues. He shows that he wants to help us. 
And, you know, my sense then and my sense now was that Trump was making promises that he could not deliver on and perhaps never intended to deliver on. You know, he boasted that he saved 730 jobs at Carrier. Well, Carrier is still in Indianapolis, is moving 500 jobs still to Mexico. And Carrier's parent, United Technologies, has a second factory in Indiana. They're moving 700 jobs to Mexico. So while Trump— We talked about the automation yeah, issue as yes, well. So, so Trump trumpets— that, look, I saved these 700 jobs, but don't look the 1,200 jobs from Understood, the same company. But, but nonetheless, uh, my, my point was that um, there, there's been a divide-and-conquer strategy uh, aimed at these blue-collar, white blue-collar workers, and it's been it's successful. Been, it's, you know, I think you know, Donald Trump saw things that the Democrats, if they wanted to win, should have seen. Uh, that a lot of workers, fairly or unfairly, accurately or inaccurately, thought that NAFTA was horrible and and you know was the main reason all these jobs left the Midwest. A lot of jobs were leaving the Midwest before NAFTA. You know, NAFTA had an effect, but I don't think the humongous effect people thought. And Trump said, "Well, I'm going to stop TPP." And one could, you know, we will debate endlessly the, whether the, uh, the, trade, the trans- trade, trade agreement, uh, trade agreement, tr- you know, will, will with people uh, be Asia. The, with Asia, people with 12 countries in the Pacific and, and um, people will debate for years whether President Obama maybe shouldn't have pushed, pushed for it right then and there because it was going to hurt the Democrats so much. But, uh, you know, so Trump killed TPP and that's going to, in many ways, help China become the main economic force. Yeah, China was a big beneficiary yeah. of that. We're going to take another short break, and we'll be right back with Steve Greenhouse. Let me ask you about public employee unions. They're, they're the most vital uh, in certain ways in the labor movement. Now, because of the decline of uh, heavy manufacturing and, and uh, deunionization of that uh, sector, uh, you know, Franklin Roosevelt was a skeptic about public employee unions. He he felt that, um, you know, it, it created an, an inherent conflict of interest. That's the argument that Republicans um, make now. How do you how do you uh, see that issue? I think President Roosevelt saw that when you become a public worker, you know, it's like joining the army. You know, you're part of this important cause of government and helping people. And he thought they shouldn't unionize. That's like, uh, you know, soldiers unionizing and fighting the nation. Anyway, so um, in the 1960s, there was an increased movement among public sector workers and teachers who felt we're usually underpaid and we have to do something to improve our lives, you know, get better pensions, they also th- argued that you know unionizing would reduce turnover and that would help schools and that would help government agencies. And many states, led by Wisconsin, gave public sector workers the right to unionize. A uh, little history. So the National Labor Relations Act of 1935 gave private sector workers the right to unionize but didn't touch public sector workers. So if public sector workers were going to be able to unionize, they needed individual states to give them the green light, and most states did. But then in 2010, when the Republicans, you know, cleaned the Democrats' clock in state after state. And won, I remember that, yes. yes uh, and won uh, the governor's mansion and state houses, a lot of Republicans uh, decided to try to weaken um, public sector unions. And they said, we're doing it to help the taxpayer. 
that you know public sector unions they argued are too strong. Uh, their pensions were more generous than many private sector workers. Um, well, we, you know, they, Illinois is a good example of that. We've got a tremendous budget crisis here because of, and this isn't just because of union. I mean, labor leaders were pushing for their members, but politicians wanted labor support. Right. Republican and Democrat, by the way. Now there's a, a bill to be paid that's s- substantial and creating a huge crisis here. So they're they're playing to, and, and in the midst of the recession, you know, which this exacerbated concerns about, about them. I'm not nearly as expert on Illinois as you are. My sense is, you know, some governors didn't make pension payments into mm-hmm. the fund for several years, and the unions offered to contribute more, but that was rejected, and instead they decided to cut future pensions. But let, let's go back for a second to Scott Walker. So 2000, 2010, January 2011, Scott Walker is inaugurated as governor of Wisconsin. He says, we face big budget deficit. It's all the union's fault. Their pensions are too high. Their health coverage is, is too generous. They don't pay enough in premiums. So let's, you know, let's go after them. Let's, uh, you know, make them pay more for their pensions, make them pay for health, more for health coverage. And, and not only that, let's essentially take away their right to bargain collectively. And he, he and the Republican-dominated legislature passed a law that was generally popular with the public that you know, greatly weakened public sector unions. And there were these huge protests in the street and uh, were you know, teachers and, mm-hmm. and social workers and you know, graduate students who were, who were unionized at the University of Wisconsin. They said, you know, we need unions you know, to bargain for us you know, to have better class size or you know, to, you know, to have decent pensions. And there were all these studies that said public sector workers generally earn less than private sector workers, but their benefits, their health and and, uh, pension benefits are better. I remember my mother said at the time that when I was growing up, when she was growing up in the Depression, people would say, look at those union workers. Look what the unions achieved. I want to have what they have. And my mother, you know, when I was on the phone with her from Madison, Wisconsin, covering the protest there, my mother said, boy, things have changed. Now people look at unionized workers and say... I don't have as much as they have. They have too much. Let's knock them down a few notches. Let's take away what they have. And, and you know, I thought what she said was really profound, just a sense of yeah, the social solidarity and the change of, of view towards unions. And since Wisconsin, we've seen uh, various states take actions to further And there have been organized unions. efforts to promote that on the right. So it's been a very sophisticated effort. Um, Some of it is philosophical. Some of it is political because these public employee unions generally have been a major donor to Democratic politicians. So it's a way of decommissioning one of the funding sources of Democratic candidates. No, absolutely. So, you know, when I started covering labor for the New York Times in 1995-1996, there are a lot of pro-labor Republicans in Congress. And it's, you know, there are hardly any left. It's really interesting. And Republicans in, in, in Wisconsin and pushing for right to work in West Virginia recently, Missouri recently, uh, in, in uh, Wisconsin a few years ago, in Michigan a few years ago, say, you know, workers should not be required to pay union dues. They should be, have the right mm-hmm. to opt out. The unions would still have to represent them, still have to bargain for them, still have to handle grievances for them. And they'll say, we're just trying to give workers 
freedom to opt out of paying union dues. And the unions would say that's outrageous. You know, they're getting all these union services for free. And the unions would argue the real reason Republicans are pushing for this was to deplete union treasuries. And Republicans don't like big union treasuries because much of that is used to help the Democrats. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you weaken unions in the private sector, that's great for corporations. And it's in many, many ways great for the Republicans because the weaker unions are, the less they can do to help the Democrats. I think one of the reasons you know, Donald Trump won, so he won, narrowly won Wisconsin. And in 2010, 15%, 1.5% of Wisconsin workers were in unions, and now it's down to 8%. Mm-hmm. And I would submit that if... Without the 2010 with, yeah. changes that uh, yeah, Trump that, wouldn't that have Trump, won. Yeah. Um, I shouldn't let you go without talking about journalism and how that's changed uh, since uh, you began, other than the fact that people are no longer using typewriters. Um, It's a different world uh, than when you and I began in journalism. Tell me, uh, what, what what is for the better and what is for the worse? What's been gained and what's been lost in this new Internet era? I, I think we were uh, Watergate babies in ways. You know, we got mm-hmm. really impassioned by you know about journalism in 1973, 1974, when we saw the great Woodrow Bernstein really uncover these misdeeds by Nixon and his aides. And I think we went into journalism because we thought it could, you know, it's not only fun but it could pursue truth and justice. And now, you know, um, uh, you know. Newspaper finances are really hurting. Newspapers, by and large, across the country have greatly shrunk their newsrooms. A lot of once terrific papers, you know, are not what they used to be. I think the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal uh, are still excellent papers, but many papers in in, in the smaller because cities. Because this is another manifestation of technology. The the information that newspapers used to impart, the classified ads and. Uh, the listings and so on that were the sort of mainstay of their advertising base is no longer necessary because people can go online and get all that information. Yes. So, uh, so you know, newspapers made tons of money on auto ads and real estate ads, and and those disappeared from newspapers. And newspapers, you know, had financial crisis. So they laid off a ton of people, and that's really hurt a lot of you know the second you know the second third fourth-ranked cities in terms of population. I remember David Simon, you know, who wrote the wonderful HBO you know, show The Wire and directed, said this is the best time in American history for you to be a corrupt uh, mayor or a corrupt state lawmaker because there are so few journalisms that are kind of minding the store and trying to uh, prevent corruption. I think at the national level, you know, the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, ProPublica, you know, I think they're still doing a very good job covering national issues, but I worry much more about local coverage. Mm-hmm. And do you, uh, I mean, one of my concerns is that um, one, of, one strata that has been uh, erased as a result is, is the uh, resources invested in editing. And in, uh, so you have a lot of journalists out there with, uh, who, who are now filing perpetually. When you and I started, there were these things called uh, news cycles where you could actually take time and report uh, and edit at right and have your piece edited and have the right questions raised and so on. Now reporters are under enormous, you know this from your time at the Times, your colleagues, your old colleagues at the Times have to file 
perpetually because there are no deadlines right. anymore. Whenever you get something, you're expected to throw it on the on on the web page immediately. So I began at the Times in 1983 and left 31 years later in 2014, well into uh, the elect you know electronic news, you know digital newspapers. And when I started, and then for you, you know, for decades, and with you too, David, you know there was like one deadline a day, say 6:30, and you tried to do your reporting and write your masterpiece by 6:30, then you could go home. Now, and, and this was the way three years and four years and five years ago when I was still working at the, at the New York Times, you know, if there was a breaking story at you know, 10 a.m., you, know, you had to get something up on the web in the next half hour, hour, and then maybe do a new, make it better for, you know, and repost by 1 o'clock, and you still had to great, write your great polished piece by 5.30 or 6 or 6.30. So you're working much, much harder. Um, and I, you know, and I think there's just in many ways much more stress than there used to be. And there's probably less editing. Sometimes I read these 1500 word stories on the web that should be, you know, 750 words. And, and, you know, I think a lot of these places don't have the money for editors. They don't have the time to really, you know, spend to get, and there's a sense that sort of this looseness that says, well, we'll go back and fix that later. But once it's in the public, uh, sort of space it's it's hard to it's it, you know that's a hard thing to do um, so you know I just don't I think there are really a lot of great reporters uh, today and I see a reinvigorated news media because of uh, the events in Washington the approach of Trump and the Trump administration uh, but uh, there is also the competitive pressure is enormous and the pressure to to uh, uh, produce rapidly, uh, I just don't know how you how you have the same level of assiduousness um, with the absence of uh, you know the time and space to do the reporting. I, I mean, you don't have the same level of assiduousness. But just to be clear, you know, people try every bit as hard as they did ten and twenty and fifty years ago to get things right. Oh yeah, there's no doubt. And, and, Look, I, and, like and, I said, I, I mean, I'm I am in awe of some of the reporting that's been done by the Times, by the Post, by the Journal, and uh, other outlets, ProPublica, uh, Pro as you mentioned. Uh, there's a lot of great reporting being done, you know, uh, out there. Um, but I. Uh, just as an old reporter, um, you know, I, I, I am concerned about the kind of pressures that these reporters are working so, under. So am I. But another thing that really worries me is um, there's an effort to de-leg- delegitimize the press. And mm-hmm. I think the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, you know, they try to do a great job every day and get things accurate and not slant things. And, um, you know, Donald Trump... You know, has been criticized a lot by the press. You know, what is the what does the press attack politicians for when they lie, when they uh, don't make good on promises, when their math doesn't add up, when they uh, when they uh, you know write about attack the press with fake news and enemy and attack the press as enemies of the people. So you know, Donald Trump is the type of politician that the press is going to be tough on yeah let me just respond to that because i I would agree with everything on your list i don't think it's up to the media to respond to trump when he calls them enemies of the i mean people will make that judgment i think some the one place where i think the media should should 
be I, just do your jobs. You don't have to engage right. with uh, you. You don't have to engage with the president uh, on uh, whether you're an enemy of the people or whether you're fake news or just do your jobs. And uh, sometimes the media can be, uh, you know, a little thin-skinned. Yes, absolutely. And the media sometimes makes mistakes. You know, Donald Trump even sometimes makes mistakes and and and, <laughs> and makes inaccurate statements. But you know, my concern is that there's you know a significant chunk of the nation now that gets its news from sources that are, you know, deliberately slanted politically and don't believe the New York Times and the Washington Post and CNN and CBS and ABC and NBC and, and partly the Wall Street Journal. And I worry that if there are tens of millions of people who reject the accuracy and the truth that are published in what the British call the quality media, and, and you know, the media really have to somehow work to Break through that, and well, get this is part of a large people out of their silos issue because yes. a lot of the people who are suspicious uh, are also people who feel uh, deeply affronted by the coastal elites, and so when you say the quality media, it sort of plays into into that, and uh, it's true. it's difficult. Yeah. But uh, you know, one of the things that w- we didn't have to contend with uh, early in our journalism careers was this free-flowing uh, discussion on the internet um, and social media and their legitimate fake news and this notion that rather than seeking out news sources to affirm uh, to inform our points of view we look for uh, sources that will uh, affirm our points of view. It's a much more difficult and challenging environment, and for that reason, I actually admire these young journalists more uh, because they, there's a lot of static that they have to navigate. Listen, I can't let you go without a word about your son, because everyone who listens to this podcast or follows my tweets, I'm embarrassed to say. Uh, uh, knows that I I love baseball and uh, I've written a lot about the Cubs and spoken a lot about the Cubs and their amazing rise. Your son is a is one of the most valuable players for the Chicago Cubs, but he he never picks up a baseball or at least that is not part of his job. Tell tell me about him. So before I sing the praises of my son, I should say I have a wonderful wife and a wonderful daughter too. And yes, you. Yes, and your daughter is the managing editor of the New Yorker. Yes, so I, she's followed in your footsteps. Yes. Your daughter Emily. Yes, I feel very blessed. Yes, uh, and so does my wife. So my son uh, is a statistical analyst for the Cubs. He's a sabermetrician. For those of you who have seen Moneyball, he does what the Jonah Hill character does. He studies statistics, analyzing statistics. So about, you got that gene from yeah, your your. Your father. Huh? Yes, yes. Uh, and uh, yes. And so he will study statistics to figure out, you know, whom, whom to draft or whom to put on waivers or whom to take or, off waiters. Or, or to suggest lineups. Or to suggest lineups. Best matchups. Yes. You know, what's the best matchup between uh, Schwarber and, 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 and this pitcher or, mm-hmm. or you know, uh, how should Lester pitch to this person? You're, you know, there's a... He's one of five or six members of the research department of the Cubs. Mm-hmm. He was in ways the, the first the first member of that department, if I understand correctly. And, uh, recruited and, by Theo Epstein. 
and and he loves it there. He feels blessed there. You know the you know he tells me one of the biggest thrills of his life was not just winning the World Series, but going on on the team bus during that huge parade when there were five, five million, million people. people. Yeah, it was you know uh, it was astounding for him. And, yeah. and so it, it's it's. Uh, you know, I think my father was here, you know, uh, during the war, and now my son is here uh, uh, helping the Cubs. Uh, well, you know what they say, those who can play, play, and those who can't become uh, saber, saber, sa- saber matricians, yes. yes, exactly. Saber magicians. Yeah. <laughs> well, in this case, yes, because those guys did incredible stuff. Uh, Steve Greenhouse, thanks so much for being here and for being here at the Institute of politics and imparting so much uh, to our to our students here. It's it's been wonderful to be here and, and thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of the Axe Files, visit cnn.com/podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.